Take a look at the handout. Open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 9. We're at the last part of the first collection. So you remember the first collection is rather long. It's nine chapters. It's the introduction to the book. In the very beginning of the introduction, we have the purpose and the thesis of the book. Then we have this big chiasm. Remember, we have this kind of X shape. If you cut the X in half, you end up with sort of this backward C. And so there's this, this sort of this chiasm is what it's called. And we have now, in this last section in chapter 9, we have the, the invitation of wisdom and the invitation of folly to the simple. Now, you'll remember early on, we looked at in chapter 1, verses 8 to 19, there was a discussion of a father and mother extending an invitation to their son to heed their instruction versus the gang's invitation. And so what we're seeing is the way in which that initial section, the father's invitation versus the gang, compared to wisdom's invitation and folly's invitation. Now, in in ordinary life, in, in real life, the experience people basically have is their parents calling them to wisdom and then their peers calling them to foolishness. And so what we see in real life it doesn't really seem like the parents have a whole lot to offer in comparison a lot of the time. And when it's dramatized into this idea of the woman wisdom and the woman folly, right in chapter 7 we had the the harlot, the woman folly, and then we had in chapter 8 the woman wisdom. So we've got all this this importing of build-up here. And into chapter 9 we have the confrontation of the two invitations to their feasts. And so these feasts are symbolic of the invitation of the wisdom of parents versus the foolishness of the peers. Now, our our culture is dominated by youth culture, and so the invitation of the gang is viewed as the only reasonable thing. It's just assumed that teenagers are going to rebel against their parents, and of course they're not going to listen to their parents or the wisdom of their parents. They're, They're just going to spend time with their peers, engage with their peers. And the assumption is that the parents have nothing really to offer, especially with Google. Now, the purpose statement, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. To hear wisdom and instruction. To see the words of understanding. To grab the instruction of success, justice, judgment, and equity. So there's this training in how to prosper, how to discern between truth and error, how to choose rightly, and how to live in an orderly and beautiful way. Then we have verse 7, the thesis. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So there's a challenge there that's implied. Do you despise wisdom? Do you despise instruction? If you do, you're a fool. And 
the fear of God being the beginning of knowledge, we also have that, we're going to read today in chapter 9, about the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom. And so, our ability to have knowledge is dependent upon the definition of God. It's dependent upon some information about God. And our ability to know what is good and how to get what is good is dependent upon information about God. And so we have seen this building out of the problem. We come to the the last climax of this introduction in terms of the invitation of wisdom and the invitation of folly. Now, immediately following this is the long section called, you know, it's collection two. It's the Proverbs of Solomon. And that is 12 chapters, roughly, 11 and a half. And that section is the longest section of the book. And only slightly longer, really, than the collection that we've just gone through. But it's filled with the things that we expect from Proverbs, all the pithy sayings. And so this section, this first nine chapters, is the drawing in, the showing of the importance of it, the asking for attention, the requiring of focus. And so this is the closing out of that explanation Let's begin chapter 9, verse 1. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her meat. She has mixed her wine. She has also furnished her table. She has sent out her maidens. She cries out from the highest places of the city. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. As for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, Come, eat of my bread, and drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake foolishness and live, and go in the way of understanding. Verse 7. He who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself, and he who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself. Do not correct a scoffer, lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years of life will be added to you. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself, and if you scoff, you will bear it alone. A foolish woman is clamorous, she is simple, and knows nothing. For she sits at the door of her house, on a seat by the highest places of the city, to call to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And as for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of hell. Now, that text, we, we talked about the chiastic parallel. The parallel to it is the verses 8 through 19 of chapter 1. Since we're at the closing of this, I want to draw them together for you. So let's, let's read those verses. They're on page 5. My son, hear the instruction of your father, and do not forsake the law of your mother. For they will be a graceful ornament on your head, 
and chains about your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait to shed blood. Let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all kinds of precious possessions. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Cast in your lot among us. Let us all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird, but they light and wait for their own blood. They lurk secretly for their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its owners. So we have a theme that we've been running into over and over again. The, the foolish friends and easy money, and the foolish woman and easy sex. And so we hit these two problems as these enemies of the wise and their allurements. And we have the contrast of the allurements of wisdom. So back at chapter 9, verse 1, Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. Now, the idea of wisdom building the house, this is a theme, and we see this for the idea of, of those who are the daughters of wisdom. Proverbs 14.1 says, The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish pulls it down with her hands. Proverbs 24, verses 3 and 4 says, Through wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. By knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant things. The fools, the gang, they tried to suggest, you know, hey, if you go with us, then you'll have all sorts of plunder and spoil in your house. We'll have all of it. But the call of wisdom is, well, you'll have the same thing, but in a proper way, in a more enjoyable way. And so, wisdom builds her house. Through wisdom, a house is built. We have in verse 1, wisdom has built her house. Now the house, we think about houses, we think about physical houses. The idea of building the house is building up the household. In the Greek it would be the oikos, and in Hebrew it's the bet. And the idea of the household is, okay, a place to dwell, the land, improving that, having other people in the house, and seeing the order of that house put in place. And so we're going to see the order of that house as we continue to go through what wisdom says here. It says she's hewn out her seven pillars. Now, you're, you're probably familiar with the fact that seven is a word, is a number that's used to represent completeness or perfection. But the idea of having seven pillars to hold up the roof, these pillars would typically be, in the Middle East, you'd have essentially a courtward, courtyard that's inward-facing. And in the inward-facing courtyard, you would have an open area because the, the open wall is not the wall that you face to the public that eliminates the privacy. Think about wealthy homes now that you go into. When you walk into a wealthy home, oftentimes there will be a large amount of glass. There will be a lot of windows, and those windows will often be facing the backyard, which is a garden or a pool or something like that. And the idea is there's light and there's privacy and there's private beauty you get to enjoy, and it kind of extends the space where hospitality can be or where the family can enjoy that open space. And so these pillars, imagine you don't have glass. So what do you do? You use curtains, typically to draw things closed, and you have pillars with open walls between the pillars going into this inner courtyard. 
And so the seven pillars, especially in a home, if it were in a city, this would be an exceptionally large house. There's a, a proverb, an Arabic proverb, that says, a wealthy man has 12 pillars. And that's supposed to be like fabulously large. Okay? And so that's this, this, this idea of a, a large estate home that has that many pillars. In a city, it would be even more expensive since land is more expensive and more difficult to make that all fit in. And so the invitation into this home, the idea here is the seven pillars do represent completeness of, of structure, but it's also a large enough number that you would say this is an impressive building, an impressive structure. And it's set up well to have that inner courtyard, the beauty of the open space because of the pillars. So the idea here is there's a home that's built, it's a beautiful home. And we're going to see the home in the broad sense, the oikos, the bet, we're going to see that in the broad sense. We're going to see that laid out as we see the functioning that occurs here. She has slaughtered her meat, she has mixed her wine, she has also furnished her table. Right, the preparing of meat for guests, the mixing of wine so that there are drinks prepared for the guest. These are this is not something that indicates that there is a low expense. This is not just bread. There's meat, which at the time is way more expensive than what we think of as meat now. And so the idea that there's meat and wine that's been mixed, and then there is a table that's set. This is hospitality, and we we have a weak theology of feasting, so we don't understand hospitality there is there is a tradition throughout basically every culture except for modern culture of the importance of hospitality and of protecting people that come into your home and dealing well with them and the idea of hospitality being a thing where you have this honorable obligation as the one who is hosting and the guests have obligations about how they're to behave and so host and guest behavior is something that is, is understood as important for the structures of society and interaction between houses and so when you think about the idea of diplomacy and ambassadors that comes out of diplomatic behavior and, and being an ambassador comes out of the idea of the hospitality of a king when he has a feast and he's inviting people and dealing with people and so this this sending of guests to other kings and the receiving the guests of kings is is sort of this magnified version of this and that would have been far more common in ancient times because you have so many minor principalities and minor cities and and dignitaries that are interacting and you can't email and you can't phone call and you can't fax what you're stuck with is sending people and so what happens is you send and receive people on a regular basis. And so there's this building up of a sense of propriety and the sending and receiving of people. The feasts in the Bible are, are significant times and significant events. Some of the major story points that we see over and over again occur at feasts. You think about Judas leaving to betray Jesus in the middle of a Passover feast where he's instituting the Lord's Supper. You look back and you think on Esther inviting Haman and the emperor to the table to prepare to cause Haman to be turned over for the, to the emperor because of his effort to kill Mordecai and the Jews. Right? You have these major story points that occur and feasting is something that is a significant event. And so the having of a feast in the home Hospitality is a powerful ministry. And there are two things that shut the mouth of the obstreperous. There are two things that cause people who would gainsay the Christian religion to be quiet. There are two things that cause 
blasphemers to stop blaspheming the Christian religion. It is the preaching of the word, properly done, rebuking and refuting falsehood, and it's hospitality and wives gloriously submitting to their husbands and putting on the display of the beauty of the home. Those are the two things that shut the mouths of our enemies. They are powerful weapons. And so wisdom teaches wisdom, and she's hospitable. Lots of mouth shutting. Now, food that's prepared for a feast, drink that's prepared for a feast, and a table that's prepared for a feast. If you've ever thrown a party, you know how much work it is to get ready for it. You lay these things out, you try to make them look good. Think about the honor that that service represents to the people that you're giving it to. Now, when we think about feasting, we don't probably, because, again, modern America, we don't really associate it with the Fifth Commandment. Feasting is either you're throwing a party as a superior to honor guests at your table, to bless them with the enjoyment of your goods and wisdom, and to either reward them or charge them to do some good service. Peers honor each other with their resources and the idea of, of inviting and extending blessing to each other and honoring each other, celebrating with them, weeping with them when they weep, but rejoicing with them and feasting with them when they rejoice. And inferiors honor superiors with thanks or with support in times of difficulty. And the idea of trying to draw in and help and to give comfort and strength when there is difficulty being led through. That's sort of a type of thanks as well. And so when you think about your goals and the idea that feasting is not about the feast, feasting is about the people. Feasting is about the people. And it's about seeking to bless them in body. And you go, that's what the feast is. It's a blessing in body. And what's the event to happen there? You want to deal with them as people, which means the giving of wisdom in the communication and the helping them to grow as persons and to be blessed in the soul. The material blessing is powerful in backing up the effort to bless the soul of the person. So after having everything all together, having this, this feast prepared with meat and drink and table in good order, she sent out her maidens... The feast is ready. The servants are employed to draw in. Now, this is, again, a a sort of symbolic feast. So, what would this be like now? Well, this would be like God, wisdom, sending out ministers and fathers and mothers, people who have wisdom, going and trying to draw in to cause people to take in the feast of wisdom. And she herself cries out. God has given revelation. And the whole order of things, and the way he's designed things, there is a testimony. So the invitation to the feast is an invitation to the simple, and to those who lack understanding, lack knowledge. And they are offered symbolic foods of bread and wine. Do you think God planned, even from the Old Testament, to institute the Lord's Supper 
and to give us bread and wine as a symbolic feast for the word of God. Now, the conclusion of the matter in verse 6 says, Forsake foolishness and live and go in the way of understanding. The call to the simple to turn in, the ones who lack understanding, she's offering bread and drink. She's offering things that are worth having, nourishment. And she's asking them to put off foolishness to live, to have life, and to go in the way of understanding. So what we have is a repentance of falsehood. We have the call to live, to have life. So we think about faith and the idea of working out what you believe, doing what you believe, going in the way of understanding. And so this is the invitation of wisdom. And then we get a sampling of some of the wisdom, and we'll come back to that. But I want to, while it's fresh in your mind, go to what folly says so we can contrast. And so remember, there's teaching. We haven't focused on the teaching yet that wisdom gives. But now there's, there's folly, folly's invitation. A foolish woman is clamorous. We could say boisterous. We could say uh, she's disorderly and loud rather than meek or controlled and quiet. So she does not control herself well and control her speech well. Rather, she's disorderly and loud. Now, She's simple, and she knows nothing. Notice that doesn't keep her from talking. Who do you want to listen to? People who know things, like the woman wisdom, or people who don't know things, like folly? Have you ever known anybody who doesn't really have anything useful to say but won't stop talking? Isn't that what Instagram and Facebook largely are? And so what we have is many people drowning out the sound of wisdom, clamoring with foolishness, and it makes it difficult because they're ever projecting out of their most recent meal for us all to see. They cause us to not be able to pay attention to things that are worthy of attention. Or so they try. Foolish woman is clamorous. She's simple. And knows nothing. For she sits at the door of her house, on a seat by the highest places of the city, to call to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And as for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Now, compare this to the idea of a house that's built, it's got the pillars, meat slaughtered, wine mixed, table set, maidens sent out, there's food and wine here, come and have it. And then there's instruction that's in between, it's wise. This foolish woman, she's sitting at the door of her house, Particularly, she's trying real hard to draw in these people. This looks like a lazy sort of calling in. And she is seated by the highest places of the city. So that's the part that's odd. So her house is by the highest places of the city. She is by these places where people are ruling. So there's, there's this sort of resting of foolishness there. And so 
we have the danger that even in the highest places of the city, even in the highest points of authority, foolishness rests there. So no matter how wise you think you are, be aware of the fact that there is still this call of foolishness that you have to deal with. Now, she calls those who pass by, and they're not necessarily even on the way to do foolishness. She's trying to distract them from what they're doing and to cause them to do foolishness. She's calling the same people. She's calling the simple. And she's calling those who lack understanding. And she's teaching them a doctrine that is also taught in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, we're told about a woman, Jezebel, She's not really named Jezebel, probably, but she's referred to as Jezebel to remind us of the Jezebel of the book of Kings. This Jezebel, she has sort of a, a doctrine of wickedness and of twisting of evil things, of, of trying to control her husband to do foolishness, and of using sexuality as an evil tool. And we see that same sort of idea being presented in the book of Revelation in one of the churches as a Jezebel. And so... This doctrine is the doctrine that stolen water is sweet. Now, last time we, we saw the reference to the idea of, of water. One of the things it said about it earlier on is the idea that you should be careful to guard your own fountain. This is talking about in the context of the wife of your youth. It's not let the waters of it go broad into the streets. This idea there is a carefulness to guard the purity of your own wife and of yourself. So stolen water here is, in the context of the book of Proverbs and what we've been reading, is the idea of taking sexual pleasure that's not owed to you, outside of marriage. And bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Later on, we're going to see that what happens is there's a passage late in the book of Proverbs that says that an adulteress eats, wipes her mouth, and says, I've done nothing wrong. And so there's this relationship of the idea of water and bread in context of the woman's folly and sexual sin. And so this, this sort of calling out the idea that, look, sexual sin is sweet. You should enjoy the stolen and secret sins that you can get by with. And that's what's said to the simple. Now, what we see in our own day is the publicity of sexual sin. And what that is, that's an effort to turn people into scoffers. right? The idea of, of pride about sexual sins is to turn people into scoffers. So first you try to draw people in in secret. You harden them. You habituate them. And then you try to make it so that they remove all shame by claiming that it's something to be proud of. And so... This idea of drawing in the simple with the idea of secrecy and the enjoyment of sexual sin in secret is the way of entrapping. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. So there's this sort of hell on earth that exists as you start to destroy your conscience. And so there's the death there as opposed to Verse 6, there was forsake foolishness and live and go in the way of understanding. Now, the hospitality of wisdom 
has order and differentiation. She has a house that's built, seven pillars, the slaughtering of meat, the mixing of wine, the arranging of the table, bread and wine offered. There's an ordering of things and the sending out of the servants and she herself calling. There's a lot of effort in this goal to serve and the ordering of things and the beautifying of things. And Folly's invitation appeals to the laziness of people. Rather than this sort of beauty and exaltation of what is good, there is this appeal to the naive in terms of just obvious pleasures that are right in front of them. The easy grabbing hold of things that are going to cause them to stumble. Now, let's jump back to the teaching of wisdom. Page 3. He who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself, and he who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself. Do not correct a scoffer lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. This teaching of wisdom, she is calling people and correcting them and rebuking them. She is giving instruction she is teaching. That implies that she does not view the recipients of her teaching as scoffers. She's drawing in the simple. She's drawing in those who lack of understanding. And she's telling them, if you correct a scoffer, you'll get shame for yourself. So therefore, if you try to bring shame on me for trying to teach you the truth, what does that make you? A wicked man, when he's rebuked, brings harm to the one who rebukes. So if I rebuke you and you now seek to harm me, what does that say about yourself? So there's this way in which there's a call to self-reflection about the future. Now, if we look at that for ourselves... When we pick our battles, if we go and correct a scoffer, correcting a scoffer involves trying to teach the scoffer how to do what is good. (laughs) Somebody who hates what's good, who loves what's evil, who's teaching to do evil, and teaching to hate good. If you go to them and say, you know, to live righteously, you should do X, Y, and Z. The, the, The futility and silliness of that. So you go, well, maybe the appropriate thing is to go rebuke them. As opposed to telling them how to, how to live a better life, maybe I should go and rebuke them and tell them, stop this sin, this is sin, label it sin. Okay? If you go to the wicked and rebuke him, you bring harm to yourself. Why? Because there's a lashing out. So you might be tempted to think, does that mean you shouldn't ever rebuke the wicked? No, there's a need to contend with the wicked, to not falter before the wicked, to, to wage war with them. But let's not forget the last part. It's waging war. You know, you could say a soldier who takes a rifle into battle and fires it at the enemy brings harm to himself. Doesn't the enemy typically fire back? And so if you're going to go engage with the mature evil, you had better be certain that you are mature in wisdom. 
Do not correct a scoffer lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. What's being done here is the simple and the one who lacks understanding is being told, look, you should wrestle with and tangle with the wise. Because when you do that and you try to argue with the wise, they're going to love you more. And when you go to the wise to talk, you will also get wisdom. Whereas if you go to the fool, if you go to the scoffer and tangle with them and try to argue with them, they're going to hate you for it. And you're also going to be poisoned in your soul. They're going to teach you falsehood. And so there's a, a labeling and an awareness here of where benefit comes from. So wise people, when rebuked, will love you for the rebuke. They will either explain to you why the rebuke is unjust and seek to resolve the matter, and that will result in your teaching, or they will receive the rebuke and see you're right and change themselves and be grateful for the fact that they have been shown what was wrong and how to fix it. Instruction or training to the wise man causes him to be even wiser. Teaching a just man, a righteous man, increases his learning. And so, the funny thing about the simple and about those who lack understanding is so often they really do want to teach. And so when they go and talk to the wise, the result will be that the wise will tangle with them and the wise are willing to potentially take the hatred and attempted harm and the shame bringing that those who are not wise might bring. But because of their training, because of their maturity, they're able to do that and handle themselves without that harm. Now, on the other end, what happens if the simple argues with the scoffer, with the wicked? They don't know how to handle it. They don't know how to deal with the shame and the harm and the hate. Now, First John talks about those who are children in the faith, young men in the faith, and fathers in the faith. A child in the faith needs the milk of the word and to learn how to discern. A young man needs the meat and to learn to discern. Right? And he practices and he starts to do battle. And the battle doesn't always go well. But they're known to be young men because they're starting to fight. And they're not just fighting whatever. They're starting to fight falsehood with the truth. And they, in that fighting, they get lumps. There's testing. There's difficulty. There's pain that comes. But in that suffering, there's a push to get better. And so one of the things that happens in the church sometimes that makes churches effeminate is when they don't encourage young men to fight when they don't encourage young men to argue, when they don't encourage young men to start going and pushing against things, when all of the fighting is internal, when there's no effort to conquer the world, then what happens is people in power find the young men really annoying, and they say, that's enough of that. Let's stop that. Now, if, if they're wise, what they'll do is they'll wrestle with it, and they'll say, good, try again, no bad form, do it again. And they'll do that repeatedly. And then they commission those men to go fight. 
And so that process of training and commissioning and not just leaving it all in internally, but saying we need to build things and do things and helping to put the energy of young men into building and doing, that's necessary. And so what, the, what wisdom is doing here is saying don't train against the enemy, right? This is when you send, if you send a child to be trained by godless teachers, you're sending a child to deal with a scoffer, with the wicked, and they are simple, and they do not have understanding, and so you're sending them to a place where they're going to bring shame to themselves, harm to themselves, and hate upon themselves. And so you train up a child in the way that he should go. You raise him in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and when he's a young man and he's rearing to fight, you send him to go get some lumps. That's the order of things. Verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years of life will be added to you. We have this statement, wisdom saying, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But you have to know God, to know information about God, and that God is the good, the highest thing. That you are a breaker of God's law, that you're not sufficiently good. And you have to know that God will judge sin. And that's a starting point. That brings fear of the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. When you have a right definition of God, you're able to differentiate creature and creator which is the basic metaphysical distinction. And if you can't rightly differentiate creatures from the creator, then what you're going to do is you're going to have false gods and idolatry, and you're not going to understand the nature of things. You're going to have absurdities in your metaphysic. And so your actions that drive out of that as you seek to understand what's good and what's real and beautiful, you're going to end up with absurdities and make grotesque things the aping of beauty is what the harlot does. Now, if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding, then we, we look here and there's these promises. Verse 11, For by me your days will be multiplied and your years of life will be added to you. If you're wise, you're wise for yourself and if you scoff, you will bear it alone. Long life comes from wisdom. Now this is true in a proverbial sense, but John 17.3 tells us everlasting life is the knowledge of God. Literally, when you have the knowledge of God, that is everlasting life. When you know Jesus Christ, whom the only true God sent, that's everlasting life. If that's not long life, I don't know what is. And then lastly, we have this idea of if you're wise, you get the benefit. And if you scoff, you'll have the harm. This is ethical egoism. Like you should seek your own interest. Wisdom is for you. You will bless other people if you're wise. But you will benefit more than anybody else from your wisdom. And so, wisdom is in your interest to get. If you're a scoffer, if you're a fool, you will bring suffering on yourself. And no one else will suffer as much as you for your foolishness. Now, We've seen Folly's invitation. 
Her teaching was very short. Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. The use of hedonistic pleasures, disordered, is the first call of folly. And so, discipline and training, self-discipline, these are the things that must be instilled to avoid that. We discipline and train children to help them to not be disorderly. We help them, we discipline them externally so they have self-discipline, so they have self-control. That's one of the fruits of the Spirit. That comes from wisdom, comes from the knowledge of God. And that allows for order in rule. If you do not rule yourself well, you will not be able to rule your property well, you will not be able to rule servants well. The woman wisdom is beautiful of mind, beautiful of body, beautiful in the ordering of her home, and beautiful in the ordering of her servants. And so that beauty is manifest, and that is the powerful tool that allows the speaking to be heard most effectively, the display of that wisdom. Now we ending the first portion of Proverbs, and we were introduced to a number of ideas that were laid out. So I have them restated here, things that we need to be aware of. We want to have understanding, which means we want to know the meaning of things and discernment. This is the difference between things. Think about creature-creator. You have the right definition of God versus the creature. You can then see the difference. And so the distinction between them and the right definitions of them. We're talking about knowledge and wisdom and instruction. I have them written out there so you can meditate on the meaning of those definitions. Holiness, friendship, and loyalty. That's a set. Think about being focused on the goal in holiness. And the idea of having friends that are committed to what is good and to your good. And how loyalty should be given out. When we consider the woman wisdom and the woman folly, the adherents of both are loyal to them. Those who are adherents of wisdom are loyal to wisdom. Those who are adherents of folly are loyal to folly. Loyalty ought to be given out carefully. We should be careful in discerning who to give our loyalties to. Covenants are how loyalty is made binding And so the goal of wisdom is to draw in the simple and the fool to correct them, to defeat the scorner or the scoffer, to defeat the gang and the unfaithful woman, and to draw in the simple and the fool and to see them put away their old ways and to see them desire wisdom and holiness and righteousness and to see them develop a friendship with the wise, and to see them have loyalty and to form covenant. And so that maturing of loyalty and that formation of of a close loyalty where it belongs is how you build a community that is not fragile. So applications to be drawn out of this. The Feast of Wisdom and the Theology of Feasting, right? We, We as a church... We have the feast, the Lord's Supper. We want to invite people to come to feast on wisdom and to want to covenant so that they will participate in 
the ritualistic feast of the Lord's Supper, the covenant feast. Hospitality and family worship should be done with excellence and beauty so that they can, you can draw people in and have the opportunity to do what the woman wisdom did. This idea of, of communicating wisdom to guests and of sharing in material blessings with guests. We, we see this excellently done when Solomon hosts the Queen of Sheba. So the woman wisdom manifests that. And wait, who wrote Proverbs again? Oh, Solomon. And then we see his practice when he deals with the Queen of Sheba. And so he was a man who was excellent at this. He had the great wisdom of knowing how to deal with hospitality well, how to deal with guests well. Now, raising children to have beautiful and excellent minds and bodies and skill. This is a way of, of displaying wisdom, of passing wisdom on, and this way that there's a, a calling to feast on wisdom. We're calling our own children to do that. We see that all throughout the beginning, the first nine chapters of Proverbs, the call of the father and mother towards the children to feast on wisdom. Women, Proverbs 31 lays out the sort of the woman of valor who is a manifestation of the woman wisdom. And so her work, she is helping her husband, she builds the estate, and before she's married, she's helping her father. And this being done with excellence and beauty is the manifestation of wisdom. Men, we're called to do dominion work with excellence and beauty. Proverbs is full of the call of men to be like the nobles and kings, those ruling men, to be those who are exercising excellence in rule. We're called to prosper in our work. Dominion work with excellence and beauty is a display of wisdom. It helps to draw people in and call them to feast and gives us resources that we can use to be hosts of feasts. Displaying wisdom, holiness, and righteousness as we're called to it. Just in, in life as we engage, there are opportunities for those. This idea of what knowledge do you have of what is good? What commitment do you have to proper relationships? What commitment do you have to right judgment and justice? When you are pressed to give an answer, you have opportunity to display your wisdom. When you're in difficult situations, when it's hard to figure out what to do, your knowledge of God is something that's impressive to people. When you can untie the Gordian knot that everyone's pondering what to do with, that is an opportunity to display wisdom. And it shows the value. When there's a pushing against you in terms of your commitments and relationships, and you hold firm, and you stand by those you ought to stand by, that is a display that's powerful to people. Holiness. Commitment to proper relationship. When there is temptation to choose something that's expedient rather than right, right judgment on display is powerful. We are so used to our politicians just choosing what's expedient rather than what's right. But there are occasions where there are glimmers of effort to do justice and righteousness in the land. And when those are done courageously in the face of opposition and people scoff because they say that's so unpractical, that is when there's opportunity for the excellence and beauty of courage to be displayed, that wisdom. Building up your own home and estate 
since ruled by the word with excellence and beauty. As a piece of art, you know, we, we see pieces of art that display these things. If you've ever seen the movie The Last Samurai, there's a large portion of the movie that's meant to beautify Shinto Buddhism. And so this idea of, of, of how the beauty of a culture exists as a display of the beauty of its philosophy, the movie focuses on this, look, people are doing their work with purpose and excellence and all of the little movements are defined, even how they make tea and make swords and whatever else. There's all this, there's this order and practice to it. If we have order and practice and beauty to things, it is remarkable, the distinction between things. And if we focus on the things that are actually worth focusing on, we can give time and attention to that. So what I've given to you here is a list of some of the key things that you're supposed to focus on in life. I mean, the law of God provides that. But this list here, how, how well versed are we in intelligently inviting people to come to church and telling them why it's actually worth doing. How well versed are we at planning hospitality, having hospitality, drawing people into our family worship while they're there, and to be able to do so in an effective way so that we can use that tool? How thoroughly have we thought about how we want to raise our children? Women, how thoroughly have you thought about how to help your husband in his dominion work? Men, how intentional are you in pursuing dominion so that you thought about my career your career what you're planning to do how you want to use it to extend your dominion are there strategic steps to advancing yourself in your career so that you have more power and excellence and ability to use that power for the glory of god you're doing these things every day so thought is worth giving you have to live in your home and deal with your own estate what does ruling it with the word, with excellence and beauty, look like? How familiar are you with the text on hospitality and the beauty of the home? Now, these things are focal points of my preaching. I think you've heard about all of these themes repeatedly. And my goal is to push you and to cause you to be drawn in to thinking about the order of those things, having a habit of thought about them, having clear definitions, having steps to take, things to do, making it so you know the difference between excellence and not excellent, beautiful and ugly. And to be able to put those things together and to be habituated in their use. Now, the other application is you must evaluate and unite with and be loyal to wisdom and those who are wise. You're going to give your treasure, your service, your favor, and your loyalty to something. Do that with God, with wisdom, to sages. The alternative is you can do that and you can give your treasure, service, favor, and loyalty to fools and to folly. So I would call you To put away your folly, to live, and to go in the way of understanding. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members or those with speaking rights.
jury. I want to ask, um, in John 17, um, Jesus uh, defines um, the knowledge of God, and he, he refers to it as eternal life. Um, I wanted to ask if you think there's a difference between eternal life and everlasting life, and so what that difference is, um, referring to, in, because, yeah, as you would refer to um, John 17, 3 is talking about everlasting yeah, so the word eternal is used in two ways in the English language. One is to refer to things as everlasting, and the other is to refer to them as being outside of time. John 17.3 is not talking about um, something that's outside of time. He's not saying it will become God. Um, John 17.3 is talking about everlasting life. So I was uh, giving an alternate translation there to make that more clear. Um, the Greek word... In John 17, 3. Aeonios, which is not something that has to be interpreted as referring to eternal. So, um, so my understanding of eternal in its special sense is something that's outside of time, without beginning and without end. We are with beginning, but... We can have life that's without end. And we have the knowledge of God. When we have the knowledge of the only true God and of Jesus Christ whom he has sent, we have everlasting life. So, if... I think, specifically, I've heard teachers uh, talk about the difference and make a distinction between eternal and everlasting. And say eternal has to do with having the mind of God and that's different than everlasting life in that we, we, the gospel gives us both, or, or believing the truth gives us both, um, but um, they're, they're still distinct and different, and we shouldn't confuse them or mix them up. Let me, let me look into that and get back to you. So the, the question was, the point was, you've heard teaching in the past that there's a distinction between eternal life and everlasting life, that one has to do with life that doesn't end, but the other one has to do with life that is the possession of God. And I think that's the point of the idea of, of wisdom, is you, you're possessing God when you possess wisdom. Uh, we're filled with him, and that causes us to have everlasting life. I'll look into the language of that and get back to you, see if there's any sort of linguistic basis for that argument. Great. Okay. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would give us wisdom. You'd help us to order things, to beautify things. We thank you for this Sabbath day. We ask that you would help us to use the remainder of it well, and that you would cause us to be able to sing to your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.